Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Rosh would like to thank the Jewish Book Council for their support in bringing Rabbi Benjamin Shalva to our community. For more information on their organization, please visit www.jewishbookcouncil.org. Please enjoy the program. much for coming everyone it's an honor to be here with all of you and beautiful in this beautiful JCC and I'm gonna ask a favor I think what I'd love us to do is to actually begin with just a little mindful breathing exercise you don't have to be into meditation or even like it when you're doing it but I think I found that sometimes we come in after these long days you know it's 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 already into the evening dark outside and I find sometimes, you know, it's good to kind of clear our heads and hearts before we move into something new. Does that sound good? Okay, so here, all you have to do is this. If you can just find yourself in a nice, comfortable position, which hopefully you already have, unless you're trying to torture yourself for some reason. If you feel like it, you can close your eyes or just have a gentle gaze on the table or the floor a few feet in front of you. And unless you have a, a cold or allergies, just begin to breathe in and out through your nose. Just, you don't have to do anything special besides that. Just breathing in and out through your nose. And just notice for a moment the sensation of breathing. Notice just the feeling of the air moving past the nostrils. Maybe you notice the chest rising and falling or the belly moving. If you notice any other sensations of the body, that's fine. You know, maybe you're hungry or full, aches and pains, relaxed, itchy, sore energetic, whatever. And just also allow your attention now to move not just to the breath, but to the sounds in the room. Not just my voice, but any other sounds at all. And if you find that in the midst of this, your mind is going somewhere, thinking about something that happened today or thinking about something that might happen tomorrow or maybe commenting on your experience in a way that's pulling you back from the experience instead of being present. Just imagine that each time you breathe, you're gently loosening up whatever that interest or thought or distraction is and just letting it gradually dissipate so that it almost it rides out on the exhale. And last but not least, I'd like you to just connect for a moment with why you came here tonight. And it doesn't have to be one single reason. It doesn't have to be the reason that I might expect. 
But just ask yourself, why am I here tonight? What, what am I looking for? What do I want? And just see if you can connect with that. And then when you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes. Unless you've already fallen asleep, which is OK. <laughs> when I teach meditation, we've, I frequently have folks uh, who don't open their eyes afterwards, not because they're dead, but because they, you know, they're dozing. And I figure, that's good. They needed it. So, but it looks like everyone's conscious. This is great. So my name is Rabbi Ben Shalva. I'm happy to be Ben or Rabbi Ben. And I want to begin to speak to you tonight. And I do want to hear why you came, by the way. And I want to leave a lot of time for us to talk. But I want to begin tonight by talking to you about something that I'm sure in Phoenix is a really big issue, which is snow days. Where I live, this is actually an issue. I, I, I used to live in DC, and we just moved this past summer to Baltimore. And um, so we have this wonderful situation, especially in DC, but also a bit in Baltimore, of being just south enough, oh, sorry, just north enough that we get plenty of snow, but just south enough that no one knows what to do with the snow. So, you know, so I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin where, I mean, you really have to have apocalyptic snow conditions to have people off the streets. But in Baltimore, DC, people panic. OK, so that also means that when the snow falls, we have lots of snow days. And I have kids. My kids are, are 9 and 12. And you know, this is, this is, uh, this is a great age. Um, they're really fun. We have a lot of good times together. My son's not yet a teenager. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. We'll see what I'm saying in a few years. But on these snow days, you know, school is closed. They wake up. They do what we all did when we had snow days growing up, unless, of course, you grew up here. And, you know, celebrating. You know, um, and then they're throwing on their hats and coats and jackets and snow pants and running out to just celebrate in the snow and run through the fields. And it's this amazing day. Now, my wife works in an office. She is actually a Jewish communal professional. Way to go. I work from home. So, and I have a fairly flexible schedule. So on a, on a snow day, I can, you know, I can, I can take off. I can shift appointments. I can do some of the work in the evening after they're asleep. You know, so technically I can be right out there with them, putting on my snow pants, building a fort, you know, throwing snowballs the whole bit. I found out that something was, something, uh, was a little off when I noticed that on snow days, I would wake up in an absolute panic and feel like my life was ending. So why is that? Why would I panic on a snow day and feel that like my life is ending? Well, on the one hand, if you have kids, you kind of get it. I mean, we parents feel that probably on a daily basis and to some extent, right? That the, our world is ending just because these wonderful, lovely monsters have inhabited our lives and taken away our dreams. However, I felt like my reaction to snow days was out of proportion to what was actually going on. So what was actually going on was I had to put off my work for a day. I had to put off my writing. I'm, you know, I'm, I split my time between freelance rabbinic work, as you heard, uh, and writing. So I had to put off my writing for a day. I might have to put off an appointment for the day. And that's the reality. OK, so things shift a day. But in my mind, and in my body, and in my heart, I was feeling like this snow 
was sent to torture me and to keep me from my dreams. Because in my head, I had what I actually call in, in my book, and this is, the, this is the book here, Ambition Addiction, that I want to talk about tonight. So in this book, I, I call what I had in my head in any day now. And some of you might relate to this. I had a fantasy in my head of where I wanted to be as a writer, as a teacher, as a, a self-help guru. You know, I wanted to be in front of thousands and I wanted to be famous and I wanted to have a Pulitzer Prize and, you know, hang out with Oprah and what, you know, whatever is involved there. And this snow day was keeping me from my dreams. How dare God do that to me? And how dare my children expect me to go out in the snow with them when my any day now is so close? So I thought to myself, this isn't, this isn't healthy. I think there's something off here. I think there's something wrong. You know, if I can't enjoy a snow day with my kids, then I think this whole concept, this dream in my head, needs to be revisited. I need to kind of rethink my priorities here. And so I began to develop this idea of ambition addiction. Now, the reason I call ambition addiction and addiction is because the more I thought about this, the more I began to see that the feelings I, were ha I was having were very similar to feelings that, uh, and, I've, and I've worked with people that have, that have had other types of addictions, and the feelings I was having and the cravings and the anxiety and the, uh, the, the urges I was feeling were very similar to what other addicts feel for their comfort of choice. And I, I began to break down some of these types of symptoms I was feeling. And I want to share a few of these with you now. Now, one of the things that I noticed that was, co that was common in me, and I began to see perhaps was common in other people, is that amb ambition addiction led me to move faster and faster through my life. So, the more I sped up to get to this any day now, the more I sped up to get to my dreams, the faster I wanted to go. And so I began to notice that I was doing things. This, was a, this would be a typical situation. I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd get my writing done, and then I'd have, let's say, uh, a class to teach in the afternoon. So I'd, I'd run out the door, and again, in my mind, I'm thinking, this class is moving me one step closer to my any day now. And, the fa and I see my neighbor, you know, and she's standing in front of her house and, you know, a like, nice lady. But generally speaking, you know, our conversations, when, when, if I stop to say hello, our conversations are going to range from the weather to uh, how traffic, how bad traffic has been in D.C. lately. You know, so and not exactly the most engaging topics, right? But still, it's nice to say hi to your neighbor, right? But I would have this moment of really hoping, hoping that she wouldn't see me so that I could just get going to the car to get to my meeting, to get to my teaching so I could get faster to my dreams. And this manic pace I began to see was something that I was uh, seeing not just in me, but in lots of folks around me. A kind of a feeling of let's go, let's go, let's go, let's move, let's move, faster, faster to get to where we want to go. And I began to see that this manic pace was, as a, was because of a thought I had in my head, a pervasive thought 
that I think is a, a key element also of ambition addiction, which is the future is more important than the present. In my mind, I was convinced that in the future is more important than the present moment. That essentially this here is a DMV waiting room. And one day I will get out of the DMV waiting room and get to the land of my dreams. Now, my understanding of course was that we ambition addicts, we all have different dreams. It's not that my, everyone wants to be a famous writer or a famous teacher. Someone, an ambition addict, could want their kids in Harvard. Someone else could want to be a CEO. Someone else could want to be a billionaire. You know, whatever it is. But whatever the dream is, you conceive of it as the place you need to be. And anything that, anything that keeps you there, which is generally speaking everything in the present moment, is something you'd like to get over, move through, and hence that manic pace. Another thing I noticed, another symptom, if you will, of ambition addiction was a lot of anxiety and depression, a lot of mood swings. Now, the, one of the things that happens when one is racing after their dreams is that one gets into a bit of a, a dopamine cycle. Now, is anyone here familiar with, have heard of dopamine, right? It's a hormone, you know, it's a, it's a chemical in the brain, essentially. And it's released when we anticipate reward. So, your classic example, you sit down to a nice meal, the waiter brings out the menus, you know, the ambiance is just right you're gonna start having dopamine flooding in your head. It's not because the food tastes good yet, it's just because you know it's coming, right? You know this is gonna be an amazing meal or an amazing movie or whatever it is, okay. We have another part of our brain called the cingulate cortex that monitors whether the actual, the actual event when it arrives lives up to our expectations. And if it does not, the cingulate cortex signals the brain to drain that dopamine essentially is a survival mechanism to let us know, eh, don't go back to that restaurant, you know? Don't, don't see a movie from that director again, right? Okay, now, if you have in your head an any day now, and that any day now is big, it's all or nothing, you know? I wanna be, I want the Pulitzer Prize. I wanna hang with Oprah, that kind of all or nothing, right? Well, that cingulate cortex is working overdrive because nothing's living up to your dreams ever. So what happens then is that dopamine is constantly dropping and then you're constantly trying to build it up and then it's constantly dipping again, which is again why I refer to this as an addiction because it's not just a theoretical addiction. One actually can be addicted to dopamine. A lot of us are. One way to know if you might be addicted to dopamine do you really need to get a text back? And do you get edgy when you don't? Or see someone like your Facebook post and get a little edgy when you don't? Social media and text work on dopamine. That's what drives them, much more than electricity and much more than Silicon Valley. That's what gets us high. Because generally speaking, the text or the actual post on our Facebook page, it's not that interesting, you know? Oh, but the fix when we get that reply or that like or whatever, that's gold. So when you get that dopamine uh, roller coaster, it leads to a lot of mood swings. 
So I was also noticing that I was, you know, more crabby than I needed to be, that sometimes my reactions were bigger than they needed to be. And, uh, you know, such as the snow day. Okay, it's just one snow day, big deal. Go have fun with your kids. No, it's life or death, that kind of thing. So when I began to research this, I began to look at, are there other, you know, is, is this something that's just my, my issue, you know? Or is this something that, that, is, that is perhaps something part of the, our wider world? And what I began to notice, and this is where I think really where I want to move to now with, with my comments is that one of the major differences between ambition addiction and other addictions is that when you are addicted to substances or to gambling or to sex or to uh, a lot of the classic addictions that we can all think of, usually society is, is uh, critical of that addiction. It's not ideal to be addicted to gambling. People don't like it when you're addicted to heroin. You get, you know, you do not get a lot of external validation for a sex addiction. Maybe a little validation, but not a lot. Ambition addiction, well, you can become president with that. Or maybe you can become the CEO of Apple or of Martha Stewart Living or an NFL head coach. In fact, our culture rewards ambition addiction. It encourages it. And the heroes of our culture are often ambition addicts themselves. Now, I profile three specifically in the book. I look at an NFL head coach, uh, um, a, a very well-known one, not today, but back in the day, Bill Parcells, Hall of Famer, took the Giants to two Super Bowls. Thank God, alive and well, but almost didn't make it because of a, a serious heart condition that um, came about because of his ambition addiction, because of how he treated himself in order to get to those Super Bowls. I profiled uh, Steve Jobs, who his physical symptoms in terms of ambition addiction, I, you know, I couldn't say. Um, uh, but certainly emotional symptoms uh, and repercussions were huge for him. Um, failed marriages, denial of, of, of a daughter, um, uh, you know, a, a verifiable to all who come into contact with him, and uh, willing to sell out his closest friends to accomplish his dreams. And then I profiled Martha Stewart, who, uh, and I really focused with her not on the physical symptoms of ambition addiction, and not as much on the emotional, though certainly those were both there for her as well, but on the uh, spiritual um, repercussions. And for Martha Stewart, and this is where I think actually this related to my own story too, um, Martha Stewart became a prisoner of her dreams and it was evidenced by her, her absolute, um, uh, her enslavement to time. Now, in, in Judaism, we have this major metaphor that moves through our tradition, which is that there's slavery and freedom, right? We have like the Passover story, right? Slavery and freedom. Now, we also have this, uh, this commandment from our sages on Passover that says we should see ourselves as if we were slaves in Egypt. And the commentators say, well, that means you have to figure out what's your pharaoh. 
You know, what's your Egypt? And for Martha Stewart, her Pharaoh, her Egypt was time itself. She was constantly desperate, desperate to, to move through experiences. People would comment that when they would come in contact with her, she was, she was just looking over their shoulder, waiting to get out of a conversation, not having time to say hello to her neighbors. Um, and this was something that was well known for her. And this was after she had become the first female billionaire, in the, at least in US history. She'd already accomplished you know, any, any day now she could have thought of, and yet still, she was panicked, panicked, needing to get further. So I profiled these individuals, and please believe me when I say, I didn't profile them to throw darts at their, <laughs> their picture. I profiled them because they were my brothers and sisters, my fellow addicts. They just happened to be more well-known. I mean, not, not many people are that interested in Ben Shalva's addiction, but Steve Jobs, okay, you know? And so, I really wanted to explore through their stories, which I think individuals more or less are familiar with, what we could learn about this. Now I'm going to end my remarks and then kind of open it up for Q&A. What I want to, what I want to, what I want to, how I want to end my remarks is by talking about, well, so what, what can we do? If we feel that to some extent or to a lot of extent, we suffer from ambition addiction, now what? So I developed actually, and this was very much from my own experience working with this day in and day out, I developed a five-step plan because you can't write a book without a five-step plan. It's just, with certain publishers, they want to know the steps before they even know the idea. Just, do you have steps? Do you have five of them? Okay, good, we'll, we'll hear more. You know. So I had the five steps, okay. The five steps I'll, I'll go through them quickly and I'll kind of explore them and we can, if, through questions, if you have more questions on them, we can delve deeper into them. But step number one is the hardest, of course. And step number one is slow down. And so I provide exercises in the book that are essentially built on meditation, because I'm a meditation teacher. Meditation, they're meditative exercises geared to help us slow down and do the kind of mindful work, not so that we can become bald Buddhas on the mountaintop, but be, so that we can just actually say hi to our neighbor, enjoy a snow day, you know? Stop to smell the coffee, whatever it is. The second step is one I call enjoy. Now, an example of this step would be to in the middle of your day, if you're an ambition addict, I recommend in the middle of your day that you tell, let's say, your boss that you need to, uh, that you're taking a phone call outside and you run out to 31 Flavors and get an ice cream cone. Now, the reason I say this is not because I figured, oh, if I tell people to eat ice cream, I will sell more books, though I hope that is also the case. No, I've said this because for ambition addicts, we won't do it. We will not get that ice cream cone. First of all, because that's not really the high we're going for most of the time. Dopamine is, is, is sweeter than 31 flavors. But secondly, because that type of indulgence is exactly opposite what I was talking about. To have an ice cream cone, which is such an ephemeral pleasure, ice cream gets us nowhere. It doesn't move me one step closer to my any day now. It's, it, it, it relocates me in this DMV waiting room of a life. It just, and now I'm like this, you know, schlub with an ice cream cone in the middle of it. So, 
we need to reverse the patterns, which is why I said, have that ice cream cone. Or go out in the middle of your day and shoot some hoops if you like basketball, or take a walk, or whatever it is. But find enjoyment. Now, one of the things I point out also is that that has bio biochemical repercussions. Because when you do things like shoot hoops or eat ice cream, you release other types of pleasure chemicals in the brain. Things like, um, th things like uh, endorphins, things like serotonin, things that can replace that dopamine roller coaster and remind us that pleasure is not just about what's coming, it can be about what is. The third step I focus on is, I call it give thanks, and it's about, also, it's about gratitude. So one of the things that happens to us ambition addicts is when we're thinking about the future, we of course forget to acknowledge or give thanks to the present. And so one of the things that I, I help folks do is to actually create their own gratitude practice through actually writing and using the model actually of, of the Jewish morning blessings but creating your own essentially morning blessing that is one, are ones that you say every day and begin to sort of inculcate this feeling of thankfulness, which is another way, again, of moving into the present. The fourth step is called donate time. And this is, uh, this is a step where I ask ambition addicts to take a portion of their day to give to others even and, and only in, especially to others when it does not serve their own ambition. So a snow day is a perfect example. If you go out and build a snow fort with your kids, that likely does not serve your ambition, unless your ambition is to be, you know, an amazing father or something like that. But which is a great ambition to have. If your ambition is I need to write a bestseller then you need to find a little slice of your day where you're doing something that doesn't have anything to do with that. So donating time to your agent and your editor doesn't count. Donating time to your, to your board members doesn't count. It's donating time to the people that don't serve your ambitious interests. And that could be even something as simple as saying hi to the person who checks you out at, at the grocery store, you know? Hey, how's it doing? Yeah, the weather is beautiful because we're in Phoenix and it's beautiful all the time. Yeah, you know, whatever it is. Um, do these weather conversations here, are they, I don't know, do they ever like go anywhere? Or are they kind of just like a nice placid smile for, well, I guess the summer's probably rough. The summer, fair enough, fair enough, okay. I mean, right now I'm just sitting here going, why, do, why does anyone live anywhere else? But the fifth step, is one uh, that is extremely important, but I think you need to do the four earlier four steps before you get to this one. The fifth step is what I call dream anew, and it's essentially reevaluating the very dreams that you have. So if your dream is that you want all of your kids to, be, to get into Harvard, let's just say that that's your any day now. Because again, ambition addiction doesn't have to necessarily have to do with your own profession. You can be a stay-at-home, you know, parent and still have ambition addiction. Uh, but let's just say that that's your dream. All my kids, they have to get to Harvard. Okay. This step would, would, would really analyze that dream and say, you want the best for your kids, great. Is there a way to take that dream and bring it out of the realm of all or nothing? That's the key with this. Ambition addicts typically have dreams that are all or nothing. 
Like when you hear from Martha Stewart and Steve Jobs and Bill Parcells, and they all say it themselves. I just, I had so much to quote, I just didn't know where to cut, essentially. When they would talk about their dreams, it was always all or nothing, which meant they did amazing things and almost killed themselves and their families in the process. But is there a way? Could we have terrific things like the iPhone without all or nothing? Could we have terrific things like kids that get into college in great schools, but maybe not Harvard? Is there a way we can still be ambitious without it being all or nothing? And that's really what I moved to at the end there, is helping, helping my readers take this step by step and analyze, how can I shift this down not to nothing? Again, this is not about becoming some ascetic that's not interested in any ambition. But how can I just get it a little bit to a, a, place where, a place where I have ambition, but I can still have a snow day? You know, I want the best for my kids, but, but if they get an A minus instead of an A, I'm not you know, locking them in the room. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So those are the five steps that I worked with, and uh, I guess the last thing I'll just say is that, uh, before I open it up to you guys, is that like any addiction, this is a, this is a, a daily struggle. And it's something that uh, I work on all the time in my own life. And what's really wonderful is that I've actually found that through these five steps, I've really noticed a, cha I've noticed a change in my life. I feel more thankful. I enjoy more moments. I move a little more slowly. I do give to others. I appreciate the moment a little more. And I'm still able to have dreams and try to move towards them. But it's daily work. And um, what I end with in the book, and what I sort of offer to anyone who feels that this story might resonate in any way, is that the work is truly uh, holy work. It's important work. And that uh, no one is in it alone. Because I certainly know that this kind of this kind of addiction, this kind of struggle, is something that I think a lot of folks have and a lot of folks work with. And it's uh, one that I think we can, we can move through together. So thank you, everyone. And just want to open it now to any questions you have or comments or thoughts or, or yes. Right. How do you force yourself to really slow down as you're saying? Like, what steps can you do, or how do you constantly remind yourself to come back? That's a great, great question. Oh, sorry. Right, right, right. Absolutely, right. And the first thing, you know, again, to reiterate, it is not about giving up dreams. But the first step I would say is that uh, it helps to have on a day-to-day -day basis, 
a simple technique to slow down, uh, just a little almost um, a practice. So one of the things that I actually recommend is uh, a breath, breath work, where um, you know, at the beginning when we did a little, little mindful breathing and just breathing in and out, like may, that, that's a great way. Let's say every couple hours to take three mindful breaths like that, where you just, you know, you're in the middle of your day, you're rolling, you're rolling, you're rolling, and like maybe before you answer that next email, after you've you know, been going for a while, just if you just step back, and even though you don't want to, and this is really important, you're not gonna want to take those breaths. For sure not. In fact, everything in your being is gonna be telling you do not take those breaths. But you're just gonna remember that you don't wanna die young, you know, and that like the evidence of high adrenaline and cortisol running through your veins, it, it, you know, for a number, you know, if, if you go on and on like that for a long time, your systems wear out much faster. So you don't want to lose it. So instead, you, you say, I'm, no, no, you know, I'm not going to listen to you, voice that's telling me to keep going. I'm going to take three breaths, damn it. And then you just take three breaths and breathe in and out three times. And maybe you do that once every two hours and you put like a little repeating thing on your phone that rings to tell you or whatever it is. But something simple like that, because the thing that happens with that is that you're actually, again, are changing your biochemistry. Three breaths gives yourself a chance to reabsorb some of those stress hormones, to give yourself a little calm. It doesn't mean you stop your work for the rest of the day. It just means you take 20, 25 seconds off from it. But those are such valuable seconds. And if you do that for a while, what you begin to notice, and this is something you kind of have to take on faith until you've done it and tried it, it but I certainly can tell you that I've seen this in my own life, is when you do that kind of practice, where every couple hours you take a few mindful breaths, you begin to notice that you're slowing down on your own a little more frequently, even when you're not reminding yourself to take the breaths. Something begins to shift a bit in your life, and then you've got just going at a little easier pace. And I think that that's a great way to start. <laughs> That's a great, it's a great question. And um, uh, did everyone hear the question? You, okay. Oh, so I'll, I'll repeat again. How, how, you know, if you, with my kids, how do, I, how do I encourage them to be the best they can be and be successful without turning them into little ambition addicts themselves? It's a great question. And... Uh, um, you know, I will certainly say that um, in the sort of greater D.C., Baltimore area, to do that, to even ask that question is countercultural. I want to really focus on that because uh, we're not the only parents to ask that question or try to change it, but it is countercultural. So we got our kids involved in soccer because they like soccer, and soccer is fun. And I tell you, within... By the first practice, I had parents telling me, this is with my, this is with my, let's see, at this point, this would have been um, my seven-year-old, that if I didn't have them in certain clinics, you know, special clinics, 
expensive special clinics and indoor facilities nearby, in addition to the regular practices he had with his team, that you know he's never going to make it in soccer. And I'm, I'm going like, this is, this is rec league. The kid's just, the, he's having fun. He's kicking the ball, you know? But again, this was a sort of a, that was the culture. You know, you got to get on that. So that's just to sort of set the scene, <laughs> to say that what we decided was, we, we really take, took, my wife and I really took a step back and we said, um, we, we, we do have ambition as parents for our kids. We really, really want them to be happy. And we're, you know, and that's, that's a ludicrous ambition too, because, I mean, what human being do you know is exceptionally happy all the time? I mean, it's just, but still we felt, okay, if we're going to have an ambition, that's what we want to have. And, uh, you know, it, that involves things like, like educational success and professional success, because, you know, you want to have, you want to have recognition and money and, and be able to live a, a, a fulfilling life that way. But we knew that it meant more than just that, that there had to be other moments. And so one of the things that we thought was, well, you know, what, what makes us happy? Well, community makes us happy. So we said, all right, we're going to have them in soccer, but we're also going to be part of a, you know, a synagogue community and connect with other people. And we also want to you know, have a, like, lots of friends over and have their, a, a, let them have a, a vibrant social life, not just one where we're schlepping them to activities, but they never get to hang out and just be kids kind of a thing. So we really thought about what are the components to happiness and said if in the end of the day they are less notable achievers who are happy, then we're okay, as opposed to unhappy superstars, which then I would feel personally like I had not done my job as a parent, if that was the case. But again, is really hard. And you're not, like I said, and I want to keep stressing this, our culture does not approve of this choice. It just does not. There, yeah, you might have little pockets of it that will encourage it. Maybe your yoga teacher will smile when you tell her that philosophy to parenting. But most people do not approve of it. And when, it, when, when you get beneath the surface, they will let you know that too. So as a parent, it's good to just, just recognize like, you know, uh, there's a great Rebbe Nachman story. This is where I'm getting rabbinic and I'm going to get sidetracked into a story. But it's a great story. It's about the tainted grain. Has anyone ever heard this Rebbe Nachman story? It's amazing. So Rebbe Nachman is a Hasidic rabbi. And he tells a story about this king and his trusted advisor. And the trusted advisor runs up to the king one day and says, oh my god, my lord, this is horrible. The entire storage of grain for the whole coming year is tainted with a bacteria. Everyone's, anyone who eats this grain will go crazy. They'll go insane. What are we going to do? Well, the king says, well, is there any other grain? And the guy says, no, if we, if we don't eat this grain, we're going to all starve. So then the king says, uh, well, so what are our options? And the trusted advisor says, well, I think, I think you know, we, we don't have an option. We have to have people eat the, eat the grain. But the question, my lord, is should we eat the grain? You know? and, and the king said, well, if we don't eat the grain, the tainted grain, then everyone's going to be crazy, and we're not going to go crazy, but they're going to think we're the crazy ones because we're the only sane ones out there, and then they're going to lock us up, you know, in the, in the loony bin or whatever. So we have to eat the grain too, says the king. But then the trusted advisor says, well, what are we going to do, though? How are we going to remember that we're crazy? 
And the king says, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put a mark on our forehead. We're gonna, in, in the story, they write the word emet, truth, in Hebrew, across their forehead. And the king says, whenever we see that mark on each other's foreheads, we're going to remember that we're crazy and not take it too seriously. And I just love that story, right? So you can't be outside the world as a parent. You can't be, you can't be an American and not be an American unless you want to go full you know, homesteading, homeschooling, and, which is fine. It's a fine choice. I have friends that do that. But most of us are not going to do that. We're in the world. Our kids are on these soccer teams and in these schools. So we know we're already eating the grain. So the question is, is there a way we can just remember how crazy this world is that we're in and take a step back when we need to? And that's really what I think needs to happen. So write Emmett on your forehead or whatever you need to do. Well, I would, I would say that, oh, yeah. Uh, um, so the question was, as much as it affects my parenting, was, was, was there part of my childhood that also affected my, uh, my own ambitions and ambition addiction? And so what I would say is the first answer is something I've already said, which is I think just being raised as an American affected it, as a Jew also. And I mean, that, and I really, I believe this, that we are um, extremely ambitious people, um, and that some of that is very noble and lovely, and that some of that is very much because of deep trauma that we're trying to avoid. So, you know, there's, there's both and, right? So I think that, that I have that, have that in, my, in my genes, as well as kind of in the air that I breathe as an American Jew growing up. Um, I, you know, also am the child of, uh, ex you know, extremely successful family, you know, with, with uh, family members that are, have, you know, uh, rose to fame and, and, you know, huge success. And so I certainly saw that. And I guess what I would say is assume that, let's say, you know, my uncle is a, won the MacArthur Genius Award, you know, so that, you know, as a kid, you, that imprints on you and you say, you know, I, I mean, I, I really believe this. There was a part of my brain that said, that's what it means to be a man, you know? And my, my father was, you know, the, uh, the youngest appointed judge in the state of Wisconsin. So then again, in my brain, I'm thinking, that's what it means to be a man, to kind of rise to that level. Now, that, those are all great things and great achievements, but... Again, that, that you, it's hard then, as an adult sometimes, to unwire some of that programming and to understand that, let's say, being a person, or in this case, I would you know, also think it is connected with this idea of manhood. What does it mean to, to rise, to step into manhood, to, to know that there are other ways that building, a, you know, that also building um, a snow fort is a very noble, manly thing to do, you know? But that was, again, kind of, it, 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 takes, it takes also remembering things like, oh, yeah, you know, in the midst of, of my father make, you know, making great achievements, he also did take time to 
whatever, play basketball with us or frisbee or things like that. And remember that that's a part of it too. Because sometimes those big achievements are like, they blind you to sometimes the other, the other aspects of, of, the, of, the, of memory and uh, you know, of, what, of what you experience. Do you have any insight on how this plays into like, shared goals and ambitions or um, relationships where one person just lives so in the present that they're not thinking of this ambition thing and, and how it affects the other partner and the shared places that they want to go together. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I think, I believe, w one of the steps I talked about in the book was donate time. Um, one of the things I speak about there is that uh, it's so important for an ambition addict to let other people in because most of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time, the people you let in do not have that dream that you have, you know? They, they might be ambitious in a different way, but they don't have, they, they're not, you know, they, they, they don't have that same dream. And letting that person in allows you to remember that mostly this thing is in your head that's driving you crazy. It's not actually, an, it's not an objective reality. So um, it, the, uh, I'll, I'll take it to a couple different examples. So parenting is a great example for that because um, I actually had to write this book in a very ambitious deadline, <laughs> believe it or not. So the publisher said she needed it. I was halfway done. I had like three months. I was going crazy. And so I had to wake up early to get in some extra writing hours before my kids wake up. But sometimes my daughter, when I wake up early, she like, she's kind of a light sleeper. She hears me wake up. She comes downstairs. She's pulling on my arm. I'm trying to write. She's saying, I need cereal. And I'm like writing. It was one moment, it was amazing, where I was actually writing the sentence. I have it somewhere in the book. I'll just make it up. But it was, it was something like, sometimes donating time reminds us that, um, that uh, our ambition is not you know, is, is not uh, uh, all-encompassing. It's just in our head. And she literally, at that moment that I was writing that, was pulling on my arm to have me make her breakfast. And I was saying to her, her name is Avi, and I was saying, Avi, I can't right now. I'm writing. Avi, I can't right now. I'm writing this sentence about giving to other people. Please stop pulling on my arm. Like, literally. And there was this moment where I'm like, oh, wow. This is very interesting, you know? <laughs> like, you know, so what I, but, what I came to was that she was an amazing teacher at that moment, you know? Um, she, was a, she was a teacher. She was my Rebbe at that moment, like showing me, hey, you know, like that's in your head. This book is in your head. You know, this dream is in your head. Let it go. Let's have some Cheerios. A spouse can do that equally effectively. And, and one of the things that I think we do sometimes in a very interesting way is we um, we do sometimes draw people to us that are, are going to end up being, um, in the Hebrew, they would say Ezer Kenegdo. Uh, a, 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 that's what Eve was described as to Adam, was an Ezer Kenegdo, which means a, a helpmate who is against him. You know? This is a fascinating description, right? But I think that um, in, a, in a relationship, whether it's a friendship or, or your partner, can be that person for you who helps you by actually giving you a little, you know, checks and balance, a little bit of a, a little bit of, hey, this dream in your head is not actually as important as you think, you know? 
take a step back. And I think that actually sometimes we actually find that person and bring them into our life and then sometimes go, oh, you know, why did I ever do this? Why did I invite someone who is you know, so in the moment when I'm so in the future? But in fact, there was a part of us, I think, that knew we needed that. We needed that kind of person. So I think that that's really important. And one of the, I think a great litmus test, frankly, for an ambition addict or somebody who's even kind of you know, struggling with this, whether you want to call yourself an addict or not, a great litmus test is, is your spouse miserable? You know, If your spouse is miserable, that's a good sign that you might need to just ease off on the gas pedal a bit. Because quite often, that misery is going to be related to the fact that you are just not putting in the energy or time to that relationship because you've been so focused on that dream, you know? Did that, did that answer the question? Okay, go ahead. So, it reminds me of my son who uh, grew up here in Phoenix, having heard wonderful stories about snow days in Pennsylvania while I was growing up. It was raining one morning, he says, Dad, he says, can I just have a rain day? <laughs> I used to get snow days, can I just have a rain day? Seems a <laughs> fair argument. Right. So I really hear what you're saying, and I, I really, I can really feel it on a lot of levels. I guess the question, to me, the question is: so achievement and success are born out of ambition. And if you don't have ambition, ain't gonna happen. Exactly. You know, yeah. Becoming successful, becoming, uh, getting those kind of achievements. Uh, is hard. So having that driving ambition is one thing. The question is when that ambition begins to take over a lot of your free space and time, like you're going to bed and you're thinking about mm -hmm. what am I doing tomorrow to be successful, to achieve my goals. Um, I guess that's where you begin to, to kind of cross that line from right. healthy ambition to maybe an obsessive type of it's a great topic because, again, it's like uh, while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, uh, famous actors. Greed is good, right? Uh huh. You know, but, but to some extent, yeah, it is until it really destroys one's life. Right. Uh, ambition too is is good until it begins to take away um, things you enjoy, like spending time with your kids, and yeah, you get that's right. Distracted, and uh, I know. My business, I end up spending way too many hours, and I kind of look at it more as workaholism mm -hmm. and ambition addiction. But they both have very similar traits. Right. Where you know, right. you just can't finish the day until you finish that list. Right. You can't finish that day until you're sure you've completed that list. Right. Great topic. Thank well, you. thank you. Yeah. And I think that, um, th thank you for your comments. And I, I want to uh, just riff on what you, one of the things you mentioned that I think is, is important, uh, which is, well, for sure what you said, that amb ambition is actually not the enemy. Um, and and it's, it's essential if, if we want to do anything. I mean, if we don't want to do anything, then it's fine. Um, and uh, uh, you know, some people need the, uh, a different book. And there are lots of books out there that talk about how to get a little more ambition, you know? Um, but, so it's not the enemy, but I think that one of the things, and this is true of, of a lot of addictive patterns, 
is that it's, it's not really about good or bad. It's about can you handle what you're, what you're taking in, you know? So a lot of us can drink alcohol and be fine, you know? We have a drink, we have a, two drinks, you know, and we're okay. But there are some people that cannot have a drink because then they won't stop. So, you know, that, does that mean alcohol is good or bad? Right or wrong, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's just not really an applicable question. The question is, how does it interact with you? And what happens to you? And does it tip you over the edge? You know, so I think um, there are a lot of people that, that uh, are ambitious and just, by, just naturally, they keep it in appropriate boundaries. You know, they're able to just work towards goals and kind of move forward, but then also be able to take a break and take some deep breaths and have an ice cream cone and have a snow day and whatever it is, and they do this naturally. I'm in awe of these people and it's amazing, but they do that, you know? But I think that, so one of the things is just knowing, okay, is, is this, is, is this, is this, um, is this the drug that, that kind of tips me over the edge pretty quick, you know? And if so, maybe I need to really have a, a much more of a structure to monitor and work with this, this substance, if you will. And I think that that's, that's the key is just, in, so essentially the key is a, for a lot of us is a, just a, a moment of self-awareness, you know, and really taking stock. Is this something in me that's become a problem? Because to just say ambition is a problem is, is that, that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, ambition is, can be a, a, a huge blessing. It's just about are we using it in the right way? Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, one more, and then we'll come back here. Yeah. No, no. Oh, go ahead, please. Did you have? All right. So, if you were raising your kids and you had an ambition of going to take a bath or judging yourself, and that's how you see it, how would someone not just make a certain day raise the chance to understand that ambition is good, but also to not try to live up to? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're saying in, in terms of how would a parent communicate that? You're saying? Make sure that the kid understands that you don't have to live up to what other people have done. Right. Only what you want to live up to. Right. Well, I think that it's, um, uh, I believe that with, at least as I'm seeing with my own children, but I, I think I can probably generalize on this. I think it's important to be very, to be really explicit about this. This is something, again, that because it is somewhat countercultural, um, it's important to be explicit about the values that matter, you know, um, to, uh, say, to, to say to a child. Actually, it's so funny. I mean, like, I was just on the phone earlier, and, and, um, uh, my wife said, you know, Lev brought home his Hebrew test and he got, a, he got an 86 or something on the Hebrew, you know, like his Hebrew test. He's in sixth grade. And so the question is, like, what, what do you say in that instance? Do you know? Do you say, um, nice work, good, you got an 86? Or do you say, you know, an 86 could have been a 96. You kind of probably a little less time on the video games, a little more time in the Hebrew. Do you say, what are you doing? If you don't pick this up, you are never 
going to get where you need to go in your life? I mean, like, how do you address it? So I feel like, again, it's important to sort of think not so much about does, is, does the 86 itself have any meaning, because I really think it ultimately doesn't. But what's much more important is the values behind it. You know, why, is, why, why study Hebrew in the first place? Why should we care about this? Why is it worth try, Why is it important to try in school? You know, why is it important to to always look at yourself and say, you know, how can I grow? Like, could I do a little better? Maybe an eighty-eight next time. You know, and I think like just being able to be explicit about values and say like what's important, um, as opposed to building some kind of golden calf that's like the A student or whatever it is. You know, I think that's what we want to get away from in general is building these false idols of a perfect student, a perfect professional, a perfect parent, a perfect whatever, breaking them down and saying, it's not really about that in any way. It's about values and, you know, here's why, you know, so in, 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 I, think, I think the other thing to really uh, be aware of as a parent, and I work on this all the time, is being able to separate and understand when something is my issue and not a global issue, you know, a universal concern. So um, is having an A student as a son, is that, is, that really, is that really a vital global concern? Or is that a hang-up of mine? It's not actually an easy question, you know? It's, it's, it's something that I struggle with, but I think it's worth asking that question a lot and saying, when I'm about to talk to my son about his Hebrew homework, can I come from a place of some clarity as opposed to just speaking from my own angst, essentially? You know? um, and that, that takes a lot of self-reflection all the time, which is why we parents are so damn tired. Well, that's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons, I think. Did you? Yeah. 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 And do you think that they're unhappy or the people around them are unhappy? <laughs> so the two-part question is, what's the difference between, or is there a difference between a workaholic and an ambition addict? And, um, and was it in general, you're saying, are ambition addicts in general unhappy or the people around them are? Yeah. Right. So the, for the first part, the, um, I do see workaholism as a sort of subcategory of ambition addiction. Because again, I really do believe that you can, you can not have work and still be an ambition addict. Um, one ex another example I haven't talked about is one can be, uh, you see a lot of ambition addicts um, at the gym. That's a great place to sort of spot that out. Um, because a lot of times people that are working on their body do it in an all or nothing perspective. You, and again, that's, uh, of course, like our culture is very excited about that because that, they can sell lots of goods and services that way. If we, have a, if we have an all or nothing dream in our head of our bodies, that's money, you know? So a lot of people in the gym having nothing to do with their work, you know, are, are, are um, breaking their bodies down as opposed to break, building them up for the sake of this dream in their head. Um, and as a yoga teacher, I run into this all the time, and then I end up providing yoga services to help them build back those joints that they've destroyed often by just taking it too far, you know? Um, okay, the, 
so I would say a workaholism is kind of under that umbrella, but I don't want to limit it to that because um, I think there's, you know, there's, there's other types. I would say that an ambition addict, and this is a great question, are ambition addicts unhappy or <laughs> they're just making the people around them unhappy? This is a great question because uh, it depends how you're doing as an ambition addict. Now, if you're getting what you want, you know, again, that dopamine is flowing, you know, so you are likely pretty high. Um, and if you're high, you're happy, you know, on a certain level. I wouldn't say soulfully happy, not a deep abiding Dalai Lama type joy, but, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're on that, you're on that crest of that wave. So ambition addicts might seem really happy and they might be happy for a while and some of them might keep winning, you know, um, Everyone else is miserable, and that is for sure. So I have not run into an example of an ambition addict that wasn't making everyone else miserable, that I know of. And in my own life, um, it's not that everyone around me was miserable, but, uh, but when I let it get out of control, I watched it immediately reverberate through my family. So, you know, and I was sort of, so I could see that right away. Oh, right, it's flaring up, you know? So, um, but I actually do believe that a lot of ambition addicts, most ambition addicts are not Steve Jobs and Martha Stewart. Most of them are just like people, like us, who have lots of successes and failures back and forth, you know? Or maybe there's someone that has very few successes. And so in fact, that's when you get, you get into a real sort of buildup of depression because when you're not getting what you want and you have not built up an appreciation for the moment at hand, then you are in a private hell because you're not getting the dopamine, but you're also not getting the ice cream or the coffee with a friend or the nice walk or the moment with your kids. So then you're in, now I'm, some of my old Buddhist trainers coming back, what they would call the hell realms, you know? And that's, and that's a really hard place. And that, I think, actually is when you buy a book like this sometimes, is <laughs> when you hit that point, you know. Um, uh, but sometimes that's what, it, that's what it takes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybeitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.